I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Elena. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. Today, I have a very special conversation to share with you, one with Dr. Kristen Hawkes, the profound thinker and originator of the grandmother hypothesis. Grandmothers playing a key role in the evolution and the very existence of our species. I know you'll be absolutely fascinated to hear what she has to say. And there are two versions, two episodes of this conversation. Both you'll find on my website, grandmothersonthemove.com today. One is a shorter, more condensed version around the grandmother hypothesis. And the other, for those of you who are fascinated by anthropology, ethnography, and science, is a much more in-depth conversation where Dr. Kristen Hawkes really elaborates upon a lot of her thinking and the way in which she came to discover this grandmother hypothesis. So without further ado, Dr. Kristen Hawkes and the grandmother hypothesis. Kristen, welcome. It's so lovely to have you with us. Thank you so much. I want to give a little bit of background, but but I can't possibly do it justice. I was looking at your CV and background and its pages and pages of the most illustrious and quite extraordinary career around anthropology, ethnography, research. And of course, you are a collaborative scientist at the Division of Psychobiology at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center and at present a distinguished professor at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Utah. It's absolutely extraordinary to read about how you came to the realization and the hypothesis that grandmothers were playing this key role, not just providing for youngsters, but also this key role in the longevity of the human species and the evolution of the human species. How did you even come to think of this? Well, it can be a long story. I'll try to be quick because it came as an enormous surprise to me. I wasn't looking for it. I did not expect it. When I became an evolutionary biologist, which I didn't start out as, I started out as a sort of garden variety cultural anthropologist and then began to see under some patient teaching by my postdoc advisors to teach me some evolutionary biology and realize that there was some tools to understand the sexes and sex differences and understand aging. And I was astonished to think, wow, is that really possible? And the turn to grandmothers as an anthropologist interested in human evolution, I assumed that we knew that the hunting hypothesis was the story of our lineage. It's the one in 
the textbooks, and it's very persuasive that what happened in our lineage was this ecological change that made hunting a better way to make a living. But if you're a mom with little kids, then being involved in hunting big animals, that's a really tricky trade-off. So the best tactic is to pair with a mate who will hunt and bring home the bacon. And then we get the nuclear family and a whole array of things that we think of as distinctively human and really separate us from our closest living relatives. The, the other great apes belong to the same family we do, the hominids, and none of them do that. And we do that. And it's really persuasive that hunting was the key to so many things about us that are distinctively human. And it was really an initial project with Ache foragers in eastern Paraguay, so this was in the New World, trying to see whether or not some of the models from behavioral ecology that I was very excited about, whether or not these could help us understand how people chose the resources they chose. And as a result of the work there, I was astonished to discover that, well, yes, men hunt and women gather and so on, but men are preferentially choosing things that don't go mostly to their mates and offspring. They choose the things that are big package things. Chances are you might not get it, but when you do, it goes to everybody. And so this central challenge, what is that about, made the invitation to go study folks who hunt and gather for a living in East Africa, the Hadza, by my longtime collaborator, Nick Burton-Jones, who invited me and Jim O'Connell, also a longtime collaborator who is a Paleolithic archaeologist, to join him in this project. And that's an especially interesting place because although the only hominines left on the planet are us, modern people, and the Ache are modern people, and the Hadza are modern people, but trying to make a living on wild foods, you know, no gardens, no domesticated animals, you know, you can't pop down to the store for a jug of milk. You have to figure out how to make a living on the wild food around you. And the kind of ecology that witnessed the appearance of our genus, genus Homo, is relatively best represented in the savannas of tropical Africa. And the earliest archaeology is there. And the earliest archaeology contributes to the hunting hypothesis because it's stone tools and the bones of big animals. So here are people in an environment where the men are hunting these big animals and everybody's managing to carry on their lives and the kids grow up and carry on and the next generation does well and so they're making it work. How do they do it? And with a special interest to what is that hunting about and what about those big animals? And my collaborator O'Connell, because archaeology was his thing, he was especially interested in what was happening to the big animal carcasses and what was happening with the scavenging and hunting. And what came out of that was recognizing, because we actually were collecting the data and these systematic behavioral observations, so Hadza folks were so wonderfully tolerant, letting us just follow them around everywhere and weigh what they got and time how long it took to get it and monitor their time allocation. So we were accumulating this systematic record, how patterns of life differed by sex and age and paying attention to, to the big animals. And that led to these data showing 
how actually risky it was to specialize in the big animals because the average hunter only hit a big animal or managed to drive off the local carnivores and claim a big carcass 3.4% of the days. So these guys would go every day, but it was almost a dead cert they'd fail. But when they succeeded, it was this big, enormous pile of meat and people came, everybody came, men, women, and children would come to the kill site and everybody ready to climb in and claim shares of people's meat. So the focus was really so much on this and yet we were monitoring how everybody spent their time. I was following women of all ages. Nick was especially focused on the little kids. And there it was. These old ladies were amazing. They were so incredible at just this persistent digging of these deeply buried tubers and accumulating way more than they could eat. And there's a lot of eating at the acquisition side and then carrying it back. And another surprise was what active foragers the little kids were. You know, they were out there acquiring things and trying to go for these deeply buried tubers. I mean, it's really so cute, these little tiny kids with <laughs> little sticks trying to do it, but they're little bitty, you know, they're, they're not really big enough. Our data showed us the return rates they were getting, and, and we could see how low they were, but they, they got higher as they got bigger and older. But it also turned out, again, just coming right out of our data, completely something we had not initially been looking for, was that the kids couldn't really manage to do well enough to feed themselves, so they had to depend on their moms. And we could actually see that. The moms who were spending a little more time, their kids were growing a little better because we were weighing and measuring people. But then when those moms had another baby, well, then she's got this little bundle of joy, right, that's really occupying her and so on. Of course, she's still a working mom. She's still foraging. But having that little one means she's doing a bit less of it. And then the correlation with how well the kids were doing was with their grandmothers. It was right there. <laughs> the trade-off that, of course, we're looking at modern people. We're not looking at the deeper past, but this thing that it was because the productivity of the old women provided a subsidy that made it possible for moms to pack in another kid because the previous one would not, you know, be, uh, that would not be toast because grandmother would be subsidizing it. I mean, I don't know why it took us such a long time to pull these pieces together, but it was also the case that the theoretical biologist who had influenced me so much about learning evolutionary biology that I, I just hadn't paid as much attention to as I should. One of his particular specialties was life histories. And so when I use that word, I mean it in this kind of technical sense, which is age-specific fertility and age-specific mortality. That wait a minute, because his model assumed that throughout adulthood, females are repeatedly giving birth. Well, that's not true. It seemed to me that you were saying that menopause and the fact that women were living long beyond menopause, where that was not the case in other species and other mammals, uh, right. was directly related to this grandmother hypothesis that that was in fact yeah. the reason that we did live that long was, was because we have this key role in, yeah. in the longevity of human life and the care 
taking and caregiving and providing for human beings. It is so easy to see once we start to put the pieces together. So this riddle from, if I go back to this picture that Charnoff has shown that, yes, the relationship between average adult lifespan, and, and he was using hunter-gatherers, so the mortality regime there is, is different. And mortality survivorship is not as high as it is in us, but it is the case in all these places where we have good demographic data among people who live on wild foods that about a third of the adult females are past their childbearing years. It's a big chunk of the population. And here we are, of course, looking at exactly that with the Hadza, with these women who are past their childbearing years being so amazingly productive. And in his model to explain the variation across mammalian life histories, it turns out that mortality is really the key. If mortality is really high, then selection favors maturing early because you know, if you wait, chances are you'll end up not leaving anything into future generations. And so when mortality is high, then age of maturity is early. Well, his model showing adult mortality is really the driver makes the question for us, what could account for the low adult mortality relatively that characterizes us. And here is this feature in which adulthood, for the female side of the story, our adulthood, a big chunk of that is after the end of our fertility. That end of fertility, as we were watching in the case of the Hadza, because those women don't have babies themselves that interfere with their productivity, their productivity then subsidizes the childbearing of the younger women. That accounts for the shorter intervals so moms can pack in more offspring. And the consequence is, if we imagine an, an ancestral population, well, this is just beginning to happen, and longevity is similar to what we see in the other great apes, and mostly females get very old and they die before the end of their fertility, those that are aging slightly less fast, so they're surviving a bit as their fertility is declining, the fact that they're still there and surviving allows the younger females now who carry their genes, their daughters with their genes, to produce more grandchildren who also have their genes. And as slightly longer-lived females can end up having more grandchildren, those longevity genes, if we can call them that, increase in frequency in future gene pools and longevity increases and we end up at the kind of equilibrium that characterizes us and distinguishes us from the other great apes. There's a story that maybe makes sense when I tell it in words, but would that really happen? And of course, we can't go back and look, darn it. We, you know, we're stuck in the present, but that's where mathematical modeling turns out to, to be so helpful to say, let's check this out in silico, as is said, you know, in a computer where the characteristics of the agents in the computer are the ones that we've talked about. And then we run the simulations and see what happens. And what happens in these models is as long as there's none of that subsidy stuff, none of those grandmother effects going on, what happens is the populations remain at an equilibrium that's very great ape-like. And the only thing then that we change 
The only thing that we change is allowing females who have managed to, the rare ones, and there aren't very many in the beginning, who have survived past the end of their fertility to subsidize the still dependent offspring. And that frees the mother of that dependent to have another baby. We run those simulations for what is effectively a million years or longer and just watch each simulation. Once it escapes the ape-like basin of attraction, just move to the equilibrium that looks very much like us, Looks has these human features, human age of maturity. It has the fraction of post-fertile females that we've talked about that we see so similar to what happens when we look at people who are living on wild foods. You have a whole demographic of additional caregivers. It makes perfect sense. Exactly. It makes perfect sense. It makes So it allows there to be more kids. Right. And those kids are carrying those characteristics. And so in the next generation, longevity is a little greater. And so there's a little more help and so on. That's how natural selection operates. It's just very cool. <laughs> it's very cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> it really is. Thinking about it from a feminist perspective. If you know anything about evolutionary biology, you cannot not be a feminist. I kind of find this dynamic tension in my love for the grandmother hypothesis because in the contemporary sense, I say, yes, of course, that makes sense and it's thrilling. And at the same time, that also has to evolve in terms of the purpose of grandmothers and what older women do with those years, not just ensuring the longevity of the species and helping with the grandchildren, which all the grandmothers I speak to do in very key ways. And there's a kind of interesting dynamic tension in those two realities, one from so long ago, which was just about becoming and moving forward in evolution. And one that is also about how there are so many other things now that women beyond fertility can and do do. That everybody can and does do, right? So right. Uh, hunting and gathering is not what how we make our livings. So there are so many ways, though, to tie in pieces of this hypothesis, which just continues to surprise me. Oh, good heavens. You mean it could illuminate that too? You know, I keep saying myself. So among the amazing things that grandmothering, this shift in our life history provides illumination about, and here I mentioned Sarah Hurdy to you when we were talking earlier, and I have to give her so much credit in leading the way on this because she's really stimulated me to see so many things. One of the things that she has talked about is how a feature that really separates us from the other great apes, and, but certainly for primates that usually produce singletons, is that in others, so if we imagine chimpanzees, for example, a mom has a baby, and she's a working mom, of course, but that baby has her full commitment, and she's going to nurse it. It's going to depend on her until it can feed itself. Now, in every kind of arrangement that we see with humans, and so we had to get to this from a different kind of ancestral condition, mm-hmm. kids, and I use the example of Hadza kids who are very active foragers from this very young age, but the kinds of things that we eat are not things that are not these fruits and berries that orangutans, gorillas, bonobos, chimpanzees, what they eat. Little kids 
kids, as they are drinking less and less mother's milk, uh, or they're getting big enough that they need more and more, they are hanging on to mom, but they're also feeding themselves and until pretty soon they're completely able to feed themselves and all they need. Well, in the kinds of ecologies that characterize the ones we evolved in and continually to recreate, uh, little kids, when they are of weaning age, boy, they are so far from being competent at feeding themselves, let alone anything else. We could talk about brains. I've, I've just fallen into this <laughs> hole about brains, which is fascinating. And I'm kind of going to talk about brains for this thing. One of the things that Sarah Hurdy highlighted was since we have more than one dependent at a time, this thing about moving on and packing in that next kid before the previous one is independent, which we can do because mothers have help and those previous ones will not starve to death. That means that moms are now what Hurdy called ambivalent. How do they then allocate their time because they have more than one dependent to worry about at a time? And this means that ancestral moms in the hominine lineage will be selection will be operating on moms to make good decisions about that. And it means then that sometimes they allocate a lot more to some kids than other kids. And maybe this really isn't a good time for this baby because of the other kids that are still dependent. Under those circumstances, the way selection is going to begin to operate on babies is really different from what happens in other primates on certainly in other apes. Because now this baby comes into the world and it doesn't have its mother's full commitment as a sort of birthright. And that now means there's going to be selection on babies to do all kinds of things to attract the attention and commitment and be active in ways that make it likely that mom will attend to them and other potential carers will attend to them. And the ones that are better at that are the ones who will manage to survive infancy, which is a hard thing to do in a lot of places in the world even now. But certainly in the ancestral condition, of course, surviving infancy is the first impossible task. So selection on this kind of social attentiveness, trying to attract, can we be on the same page? I want you to pay attention to me. Let us both focus on this. And it was Sarah Hurdy, who made connections between that and the work of Michael Tomasello, who's an experimental psychologist who's been really interested in what's different about human sociality from the sociality of the other apes. And he's called this feature shared intentionality. It's the thing about us. We, I mean, here I am talking to you, <laughs> hoping that we can be on the same page. Right. Anybody who happens to be listening to us will also, you know, begin to have the same pictures in their heads I do, and we'll all be in the same place. Well, you know, if we were any other kind of primate, this is just not <laughs> even interesting and certainly not happening. So selection for this kind of mm, the characteristics of our sociality where we get so much pleasure out of, and again, pleasure follows what it has paid off for selection to see more of. So then those that like to do it end up leaving more copies of themselves. 
So all of these things then begin to get selected in us. And therefore, all the kinds of things that we do and can do together. And for the variation side of this, of course, what happens in human communities, and this would begin to happen without so much variation, but still early in our evolution, that what happens to be going on right here is unlikely to be exactly the same as what's going on over there. And so I am, as an infant, it's what's right here that matters to me. This is what I'm interested in. And so we begin to get variety in a way that we don't see in other mammals and in other primates. Then when you compound that with the things that have happened in the Holocene, which is which is the last about 10,000 years after uh, where, where we have agriculture in a lot of places and then bigger communities and more complex social organization and more complex economies and so many different ways then that, that people make a living, then the ways in which people find the thing that they are interested in doing gets to be richly diverse. And I don't want to not mention also Ooh, so you'll probably have to stop me, Alana, as am I, this is well, probably too much here. But a thing that is so weird, which, by the way, is, has come to be a technical term, weird society. So that's white, industrial, rich, educated. I'm not sure. Am I getting these in the right order? Democratic. So the, the kinds of places in which a lot of investigation of human predispositions have gone on is a very small part of most of human experience. And the tendency to think what comes out of that encompasses all of human experience is clearly missing so much of the variety. And it's going on in a place where we are running this experiment that is so hard on people. This experiment of isolated nuclear families. And I think actually one of the reasons that the hunting hypothesis where we started out is so persuasive is, you know, we're used to that. We're used to mom and dad and the kids and then you close the door and all that stuff happens within that little group and it puts so much pressure on those relationships. Whereas in most of human experience, People are, have, including little kids, they have intimate relations with lots of adults, not just mom and dad. So there, there are things going on in our current, the social organization on a lot of the planet that is really making it difficult for a lot of things that have been easier in so much of our evolutionary history. I would like to, I mean, you might talk me out of this, but I would like for people to consider and you to consider whether or not the sort of bifurcation you said you were feeling is a necessary one. I think, of course, that, that our evolutionary history is so crucial to who we are. I mean, that's how come we have the tastes and appetites and, and respond to things around us the way we do. All of these threads are threads of a story that each one, as you try to pull it and see where it goes, I, it's just amazing how often it leads back to grandmothers. <laughs> or maybe, maybe that's just my 
obsession, yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. I share it. When I was looking up the grandmother hypothesis and the grandmother effect, I noticed that it hasn't been without controversy. Right. I wondered if you could share with us what that was about. Well, I'm not a good source for making a persuasive case for the alternatives because, I mean, when we're talking about the grandmother hypothesis, it's a hypothesis. And, you know, I'm certainly, as, as things sort of begin to just accumulate that seem consistent with it, it almost seems to me this can't be right, you know, <laughs> good heavens. But I would urge everybody that it's really got to be one of the ones that we keep on the table because it continues to be so productive. But as I we started out with the hunting hypothesis, which I think is still the one in the textbooks, the idea that nuclear families are a result of this ecological context in which making a living on plant foods didn't pay off as well as hunting and especially hunting big animals and that it was hard to square doing that if you were a mom and had kids with their welfare. And so you were better off to pair with a hunting male and he would go forth and bring home the bacon and then that that produced the nuclear family, sexual division of labor, a whole array of things that, again, one of the reasons this has been so persuasive and throughout the 20th century and continues to be in the textbook today is, again, we can look at these things, you see them around you, that seems very familiar. It is not what other apes do. It is really a thing that's different. If you're a chimpanzee, females mate with all the males. There are a whole array of males that are all competing with each other to be higher in the dominance hierarchy and as a consequence, be more successful at displacing other males and get more paternities. And, and then we see these nuclear families. And so it seems like, well, that's the difference. It's paternal provisioning. And again, I thought, yeah, made sense to me. I thought we knew that. It wasn't even in question. And then it was my own ethnography that showed how actually, you know, first with the Ache and then with the Hadza, that men were, yes, they were hunting and they were prioritizing these things that actually mostly didn't go to their own wives and kids. Mostly they went to everybody else and trying to figure out, you know, oh, wow, what's that about? What are those male strategies about? Given that I was interested in male strategies and then these things about life histories that were especially focused on females and started out paying attention to these these models that Charnoff had built where he was just using females. But these things we've been doing recently, the mathematical modeling, these are two sex models. It has both males and females in it. You know, grandmothers have both sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters. And, and the things that I was telling you about the models, all it takes is those grandmothering subsidies to go from an ape-like life history to a human-like one. But I did not see the connection <laughs> between male strategies and this life history feature that is so odd uh, about us, this postmenopausal longevity, because what's happening is longevity increased in, in both sexes. This is not, you know, the things that are repairing your cells and organs and whatever is going on with aging. Longer life, grandmothers have longer life, daughters have longer life, sons and daughters, longer life, etc. You know, this is happening in both sexes. So the males are at the same time getting longer lived, just as the females are. 
But what this is an oddity of mammalian reproductive physiology in females, not just in us, but in not just in primates, but in mammal females in general. Females have all the eggs they'll ever have, all the oocytes they'll ever have very early in life. In women, it's at about the fifth month of fetal life, you have the most oocytes you will ever have, and you st- you actually lose most of them before you're even born, and then you just keep losing them and losing them most of the rest of them before you- before menarche, before you begin to ovulate. That is a general mammalian thing. But in males, male gametes, sperm, spermatogenesis continues all the time. So as males, as aging slows, and male longevity increases, those older males are also fertile. And so a consequence of that is that in the fertile ages, now what begins to happen is the sex ratio goes from being female biased to being male biased. And in fact, in evolutionary biology, this is called the adult sex ratio because, you know, we're talking about animals generally. And for the most part, adulthood is all about pumping out offspring, right? So that's a weird feature of of ours. But uh, because uh, fertility ends at the same age in us that it does in the other apes, as this longevity thing increases, and again, uh, at least in the grandmother hypothesis, the reason it increases is because those females are not encumbered with babies themselves that they can subsidize the fertility of the younger ones. And that's what drives the story. A consequence is more and more older males and the sex ratio gets to be very male biased. So one of the papers you mentioned was about this, not just tracking longevity or these other life history features, but actually tracking the sex ratio in the fertile ages as we run these simulations. And it starts out female biased and it switches to male biased. Now, that's weird for a mammal. And across organisms, including some invertebrates where these things have been studied. In fact, that's actually where it started out, looking at invertebrates. When there are lots of males out there who are competing, then the best strategy can be to claim one and guard her as opposed to competing for more matings each time. And that's when guarding becomes advantageous. And so this life history shift to uh, increase longevity because it's postmenopausal on the female side gives us these male bias sex ratios. And the old guys are competing with the young guys and those old guys are way ahead of the game because they've got all their alliances in place. And so we get a whole array of things about male-male competition that look like such a powerful set of tools for understanding pair bonding, which again is a, you know, it is a thing we we humans do. We form these special relationships and that also ties into the shared intentionality thing I was talking about. When I was first reading Sarah Hurdy making this connection with shared intentionality, one of the first things that I was thinking about was how much we can end up grieving for a lost partner and actually for an intimate friend, somebody that you've spent so much time with, done so many things with. And again, this shared intentionality thing means that for us, 
that's the way we think about life. These things we do together, when you lose that person, you've lost something that's so important to your whole identity. So the way we invest in these relationships, the way they matter to us, and then that's part of the package. And, you know, again, inevitably, when I pull that string, it takes me back to grandmothers. Oh, extraordinary. Okay, so I have one final question, which is more a social one. The very phrase, the grandmother hypothesis, and the notion that grandmothers play this critical role is a meaningful one in completely lay terms, because there's Mm -hmm. so little recognition in our societies of the critical role of grandmotherhood, and there's not a lot of talk about it, and sometimes it's invisible. You're changing that. Ilana. I hope you so. You are changing that. <laughs> I hope so. I hope I'm contributing to that change with, with all these grandmothers. And they're changing it too, right? Yeah, they truly are. And yeah. I wonder how you feel, quite separate from all of the information that informs the grandmother hypothesis. I see it everywhere, Kristen. I see articles about the grandmother hypothesis. I see the phrase being used. And it gives visibility and importance to grandmothers, even if we don't know the whole content of it as as you do. It's wonderful to hear. I, of course, maybe we're always like this or some of us more than others. I tend to hear the opposite. I'm in places where uh, (laughs) other kinds of arguments seem to be holding sway. So really the way in which we, my collaborators and I, have sort of come to all of these pieces is we were gobsmacked by suddenly seeing the productivity of of these wonderful old Hadza ladies, and really they ought to get credit for everything. And then seeing this connection with how important that was when moms had new babies, so so we could really see the trade-off that probably played such a crucial role. But there are really influential evolutionary biologists who had already picked out this feature of our postmenopausal survival as really an important piece that if we knew how to read it would tell us about our evolution. So in a sense, that was really there. So it's taken us a while to, you know, begin to add more pieces and I'm sure there will be others and and there will be corrections of some of this. Maybe more and more people will begin to say, well, okay, let's at least have it on the table. And um, I think that's the way things move forward. I thank you so much. This has been extraordinarily instructive and interesting and now gives so much more content to the grandmother hypothesis and I'm I'm quite sure you'll see it floating around more and more. Oh, thank you, Alana. Thank you very much. Thank you so much and, and all the best for all the continued work. Yes, and to you and to all the wonderful grandmothers that you talk to. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.